Hello, space adventurers. This is Colleen Parrott with the Space Foundation, and we're happy to have you join us for our brand new Space for You podcast. This podcast is designed to share insights and experiences from the people that are making and have made our space adventure possible. Today, I am joined with Lou Ramon. Lou Ramon has been a space cadet his entire life. He went from having model plane Air Force hanging up in his bedroom to watching science fiction TV shows and movies and working in the space industry on nearly every human spaceflight program from Gemini, Apollo, the space shuttle, the International Space Station, to Orion. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lou. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So, as we said, you worked in many, many different areas of the human spaceflight program here in the United States. What made you become an engineer? Uh, really, my dad. Uh, I think uh, he was an engineer. Never graduated from high school, but he was an engineer uh, for General Motors and instilled that in me. And, um, you know, got me building model airplanes and got interested in science fiction and read some of the early Robert Heinlein uh, books that were in some of the magazines and, and watched all the kids' science fiction programs as I was growing up. And between my dad and my mom, they, they pushed me uh, and helped me get into uh, to engineering school in California. What got you started in space then? So, you know, your mom and dad inspired you to get going in engineering. It was was the aircraft and then the science fiction stuff. The the space cadet TV shows and serials and Rocket Man and that sort of stuff. I just got excited. I think the same thing still goes on today. There's something about the space program that excites young people especially. Did you have a role model? I mean, you mentioned your father. Did you have anyone else in your life, a teacher, anything that inspired you to become an engineer and to do this work? Really, it was it was my dad that, that inspired me to go into engineering. As I went through college, one of the professors particularly was inspirational really a tremendous guy, George Graves. And then I've been fortunate enough in my career to have gotten to know and work with some true visionaries, and and that's always exciting and inspiring. Very awesome. Can you tell us what were some of the jobs you performed for the space program? Well, I was lucky. I was lucky that NASA was desperate for engineers when I graduated from college and and they hired me and I got to work on a variety of things. The first real fun job was in the Gemini program. For some reason I got put in a group who was tasked with developing the technology and the techniques for spacewalks. So I got to do that, and I got to, I guess my whole career, mostly I got to play like I was an astronaut. I got to, in order to develop the technology to do spacewalks and such, I had to do it. I had to wear, learn how to wear a spacesuit. I had to learn how to fly the zero-g airplane. I had to do all that stuff 
So, uh, you know, I was working that EVA thing, getting to fly zero-G airplanes, getting to wear a spacesuit. First time, it was a thrill for me, the first time I got to wear a spacesuit. At the time, I wore glasses. I was practically born with poor eyesight, but I was wearing contact lenses. And darned if the first time I got into a spacesuit, as soon as they put the helmet on, and we pressurized the suit. One of my contact lens popped out. We had to stop and go find the darn thing. But uh, uh, you know that was that was a neat experience. First time I got to meet an astronaut was a, a neat, somewhat humbling experience. Uh, I thought that astronauts were heroes. They are heroes. Oh yeah. But I had a picture in my mind of what a hero was like, and I'd just been assigned to to this group working on spacewalks. And we were going to do a training exercise for one of the Gemini flights. And I was walking from our office area to where we had the trainers. And that took me through the astronaut locker room. And uh, General Tom Stafford, he wasn't, wasn't a general then, was one of the astronauts on that flight. And he was changing from his street clothes into his flight suit. Mm -hmm. And I walked by, Tom was sitting there. Now, I was a kid, 23 years old, 24 years old, not quite. And Tom was an old guy, probably near 30, maybe just over 30. <laughs> and uh, he was changing his clothes, and he was standing there in his underwear. And, and, <laughs> and I don't know what you think a hero wears for underwear. I don't know what Superman was supposed to wear for underwear. But it wasn't red and yellow polka dot boxer shorts. <laughs> so that knocked, you know, one of my illusions as a young engineer right there. That, that hey, these guys are real people. <laughs> oh, that's, that is fantastic. <laughs> Tom will shoot me for that. <laughs> so, I mean, you started with Gemini. Started with Gemini. Uh, we worked the, the spacewalks stuff on Gemini. Through the course of doing that, I got involved more and more with, with the human operations part of things and got to work with some of the fellows that were working on the development of some astronaut maneuvering units as flight experiments on Gemini. They never really panned out because of various uh, technology issues that we had. We didn't know how to do spacewalks. You know, we learned a lot from that. But that got me experience with spacesuits, got me experience uh, with EVA and things like that. And for some reason, and I still don't understand why, uh, they asked me to go be a member of what they called a flight crew support team for Apollo 11. This was a group of five people that were assigned directly to the astronauts, worked out of the astronaut office, uh, to represent the astronauts on the assembly, checkout, development of the spacecraft and all the equipment that the astronauts would be using. They, they gave me the job of being responsible for Lunar Module 5 which was the lunar module that was going to fly on Apollo 11. And uh, they, the, there was going to be a lot of travel, a lot of time away from home, and the carrot they dangled in, in front of my nose to get me to do that was the possibility 
that Apollo 11 would be the first lunar lander. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of confidence that it would. This was before we flew Apollo. This was before we flew the lunar module. Lunar module was way behind schedule. I knew that much. <laughs> you know, so the likelihood of all the pieces falling together was slim, but it was a, it was a shot at it. So that was what got me into the Apollo program. Like I say, I don't, I don't know how I was selected, <laughs> but uh, the five of us, one team leader and then one person responsible for spacecraft systems, one for the command and service modules, one for the lunar module. The other person was what they called a crustacean engineer responsible for everything that the astronauts would operate, touch, use inside and outside the spacecraft. We had one fellow that was working command module. I was assigned to the lunar module. People don't realize there's so much testing. The astronauts really aren't able to participate in that testing. So I represented Neil and Buzz in probably 85, 90% of those tests because they had to learn how to do their mission. Right. So that was what my, my job was with them. Very interesting. Of all the different aspects of the human spaceflight program, is Apollo 11 the project, the, the particular program that sound, stands out as your favorite, or is there another? I have to say there are a couple of others. And, okay. and, and the part of that reason was, gee, I was only, I turned 27 one month before we launched. So I had 45 more years of career and <laughs> in, in neat projects. The ones that stand out in my mind, I guess one was the development of the remote manipulator arm that I got to work with on the space shuttle and space station. Another was the development of the man maneuvering in it, being able to see astronauts ride that thing without tethers and, and fly away from the, the shuttle. And I got to work with some very special people on, on all of those. But those three areas are the ones that, uh, that I think, to me, are the, the highlights and the challenges. That is just incredibly awesome. You've done some really wonderful things. Well, there's one other highlight. Uh, What's maybe, that? Maybe two. Uh, and this was, you know, as, as I graduated from being an engineer to becoming a manager, one of the highest awards that an engineer in the space program can get is what they call a silver snoopy. This is an award given by the astronauts to individuals who have made significant uh, strides in either helping their flights be a success or their safety. And two of the folks that worked in my team on the space station uh, I nominated for Silver Snoopy Awards, and they were given it. And that was, to me, a real honor uh, to have been able to mentor and help these people who really contributed. That's wonderful. That's It's always so great to see people helping other people succeed and to get an honor like that. Well, I think, I think that's, what, that's what a manager's job is. <laughs> what, what, what you want to do is help your people succeed at whatever efforts that they're working on. Absolutely. What would you say is one of the greatest lessons that you learned from working these various assignments? The greatest lesson I learned, and it's, it's one that um, 
I sensed all along, but really what focused it was working with Alan Bean. Alan uh, was the fourth person to walk on the moon on Apollo 12. I worked with him as a when he was a backup crewman on Gemini. I helped out on Apollo 12 early in the, the work on that lunar module and uh, worked with him when he was the commander of the second Skylab flight. And that is to value the people that you're working with, respect them, and make sure that when, when you're working with that team that you find out, seek out, at least one thing that every member of that team is contributing and value that and value him or her. That That's the life lesson. I think that's that a I wonderful learned. lesson that... That's me. Nothing, everything. Nothing, nothing <laughs> technological, you know. Not but I did. I, I learned a lot of stuff. But but that was the life lesson. What would you say was your toughest assignment? My toughest assignment was my last assignment. I'm I'm an engineer, just a mediocre engineer, but an engineer trained as an engineer. Got my degree as an engineer. Did engineering all my life. My last assignment was in business development. I was working for a company called Jacobs Technology, and we operated most of the engineering facilities at NASA, in my case in Houston, but at all the NASA centers. Uh, NASA's budget was being reduced. They did not have enough budget to fully staff and operate all their laboratories and facilities. They tasked us with bringing in non-aerospace business to utilize the expertise. So we had to go out and talk to people in the medical field, talk to people in the uh, petrochemical field, and convince them that there were things that they could use NASA facilities for and NASA technology for. And, and that, was, that was the biggest challenge <laughs> I had because it was so different, and it really was interesting. Did you feel that it was a success in the end? I think it was. I think it was. We brought uh, people from uh, the Texas Medical Center in. We brought people from uh, pharmaceutical companies, medical equipment companies in. We brought people from um, undersea technology in. And, And it opened their eyes as to what the technologies that NASA has developed could be utilized for to help them. Fascinating. So it really fits a little into our space certification and our space technology hall of fame. Oh, yes. And it's very difficult, as you guys know, Mm -hmm. to educate somebody how some technology or something that that you're providing, that you've developed, Mm -hmm. can help them because they never thought of it. It's so wonderful when we get to see the different areas of business come together yeah. like that because there really is a lot of overlap that yeah, there we, really don't, is. we don't always notice. Now, um, so you worked with a lot of different astronauts. Do you have a favorite memory from any of your particular assignments with the different well, astronauts? Two of, them, two of them. One of them with the Apollo 11 guys. Maybe a couple of weeks before launch, uh, Neil, Buzz, Mike Collins... Uh, had a uh, uh, a barbecue and a party at their beach house. They the astronauts have a beach house at Cape Canaveral uh, that was there before the government took over the area, and they use it as a you know, escape pad to get out of the simulators and, and go 
go hide for a while. And they were having a, uh, a barbecue for the two dozen people that worked most closely with them. They invited me to that, uh, and the rest of our five-man team, of course, uh, to that. And I told them I, I wouldn't be able to make it because that was the evening that we were finishing up on the lunar module, literally closing the door and locking it up, and it would be 10.30 or 11 o'clock before I got away. And Neil said that he would save me some barbecue and beer, and they would wait for me. So, okay. We closed out the lunar module, signed off on the paperwork. I drove over to the beach house. There was a parade of cars leaving already. But uh, like, uh, you know, true to his word, Neil and, and Buzz and Mike had stuck around. They had saved me some barbecue and beer. And we just sat around talking. Uh, by that time, it was just the three of them and myself for about an hour or so. I don't even remember what we talked about. <laughs> but as the clock got closer to midnight, we all had early starts the next day. So they were, you know, it was time to pack up. They had to go to the crew quarters. I had to go back to my apartment. But I wasn't that familiar with the roads at that part of the Cape. There are no lights out there. So I asked if I'd be okay if I followed them back to the crew quarters and I could get home from there. So they said, sure, fine. So they got in their cars. I tucked in behind them in mine. And they drove out around the launch pad, on the beach side of the launch pad. At this point, the Saturn V was out there. It was fueled already. It was lit up by these huge uh, searchlights. Absolutely spectacular. Instead of just going around and past it, they pulled off to the side and stopped their cars, got out of their cars, and went up to the chain link fence uh, around the launch pad. I stayed back. They got out of their cars, walked up there, and, and looked like kids looking in a schoolyard playground. I can only guess at what they might have talked about as they talked amongst themselves, or what they might have thought, realizing that just a few days after this, they were going to get on top of that 36-story rocket ship and go attempt to make history for human beings. And that, that stands out in my mind. What a memory. How That's fantastic. Oh, that, <laughs> the other one is back with Alan Bean. And, and this is just the way he was. They had a, um, a commemoration, a program, at NASA in Houston in the auditorium. Uh, this might have been the 10th anniversary or such of the Apollo landings. And they had a form of... of astronauts who had been to the moon and they were having a roundtable discussion open to the public I brought my kids to that to hear it after we got through it, it almost looked like a scene from Star Trek you know where they have a uh, their red alert on, on the Enterprise and it seems like all the people on the left side of the ship have to go to the right side and all the people on the right have to go to the left. This was the way it was as we <laughs> came out of the auditorium. Everybody that came out the right door for some reason seemed to go to the left and vice versa. So there was a big jam up. And we were waiting in the crowd. Alan came out and walked past, recognized me, stopped, introduced himself to my kids and bent down and said, you know, I really have to appreciate everything your daddy did 
Uh, if it wouldn't be for him, we couldn't have done this. And, and he didn't have to do that. And, and that's what what I remember, that kind of person that he was. Well, and that's the thing is you've said uh, that you were a mediocre engineer, and I'm thinking that's not the case. Oh, I was. I was. Nothing outstanding. But I got, I mean, where I'm blessed was I was there at the right time to work on some very exciting stuff. And I got to meet people and work with people like Neil Armstrong and, and Alan Bean. Um, got to work with Gene Kranz. Got to work with the fellows that were the, the inspiration for the program. The fellow that, that was the developer of the man maneuvering unit. Nobody much knows about it. A guy named Ed Whitsett. These were the visionaries and I was just privileged to get to help them. Well, it sounds like you did a fabulous job of that, which leads me a little to my next question. I've heard a rumor about Candy and the Apollo 11 mission. Can you tell me a little bit about that? We had a lot of things you know, that the public doesn't know about. Nothing sneaky, nothing, <laughs> you know, no space aliens, uh, nothing that, uh, that's classified information. But we had some things that, uh, that you just have to do in the course of getting the job done. One of them was shortly before launch, a few weeks before launch. Neil came to me and asked if I could get some Lifesaver candies uh, on board the lunar module just so they have something that, that was a little bit tart, maybe a little sweet, to take the place of all the bland food that, that they had uh, while they were on the moon. And I said, sure, I can do that, Neil. Thank you. I'll, I'll take care of that. Well, the first person I had to talk to, the first group, was talk to the dietitians to make sure that if we put candy on board, if the crew ate candy, that it wouldn't mess up or spoil some medical experiments or something like that. And um, the dietitian, a woman named Rita Rapp, um, said, sure, there's no problem there. So then the next step, and you have to do this with anything that you carry on a spacecraft, had to go and get approval from the safety office. That was just a formality. And they surprised me uh, when they said, no, you can't have the candy. Their concern was because the lunar module cabin is pressurized with 100% oxygen, which is very flammable, that if the astronauts bit down on that hard candy, that they might cause a spark and could cause a fire inside the lunar module. Okay, I couldn't argue with that. I mean, that's what they said. So I went back to Neil and told him, I'm sorry, but safety wouldn't let me add the candy. And, and he made some comments about my abilities uh, that were somewhat insulting. So since I worked directly for him, I knew who signed my paycheck and did my employee evaluation. <laughs> I said, okay, yes, sir, I will do that, but on one condition. I made him promise, cross his heart, hope to die, that he and Buzz would only suck on the lifesavers, that they wouldn't bite down on them. So he promised me that. Several days later, as we were getting ready to put the food and other equipment in the lunar module before the barbecue, that <laughs> night of the barbecue, uh, I snuck into the area where we kept all their equipment about 2 in the morning and uh, with a razor blade sliced the seals that we had on their food packages and stuck in two rolls of Lifesavers. Uh, I have to believe that Neil and Buzz kept their word 
there were no reports of sparks. There were no reports of fires in the lunar module. So they they kept their promise and only <laughs> sucked on the candy. And you, awesome. you won't find, you know, <clears throat> everything had to be documented in triplicate, but you won't find this in there because we <laughs> stuck it on board. Which is completely fantastic. <laughs> so you've told us a little bit about what you did before um, the Apollo 11 launch. Um, what was your role during the lunar landing itself? During the lunar landing, frankly, uh, I was at our team leaders uh, having a picnic. We had, our job was to get the lunar module ready for the crew. And once it left, unless there was a problem or an issue, our job was done. The flight controllers took over from there. And fortunately, on, on Apollo 11, we didn't have any any real issues uh, like that. So we just were bystanders and, and watchers. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was hard to believe how it went. On Apollo 12, even though I didn't work, wasn't assigned to Apollo 12, we did have a problem um, on the lunar surface a little bit where the astronauts accidentally shined their color TV camera, pointed it at the sun, and it burned out part of the, oh. the video tube in there. And there was an effort made to see if the astronauts could repair that. My counterpart, who worked Apollo 12, uh, worked the lunar module there, had not yet gotten back from the Cape. So since I was familiar a little bit with that specific lunar module and lunar modules in general, they called me in okay. to work that. We had to develop the procedures, the techniques for the astronauts to bring the camera in, how they would try to repair it, and that sort of thing. What was, what was interesting on that was we had limited time. We had to make that decision, NASA did, to have them bring it in before the end of their first spacewalk. And nobody was, we had the procedures and everything all ready to go, uh, but nobody was making that decision. I had just bought my first color TV set, my little 19-inch Zenith, and since nobody was saying anything, it was getting down to the last 20 minutes of their spacewalk, time to bring things in, and nobody was doing anything. So finally, this little 27-year-old kid said, well, by golly, let's do it, because I wanted to see color if I could. And all the NASA management, all they needed was somebody to, to make a suggestion. That, okay, yeah, we'll do that. So they brought the camera in, tried to repair it. It didn't work. But it was, it was just funny that, <laughs> that, you know, this kid uh, was the one that kicked that off. Well, at least you made the suggestion. And I made the suggestion. Try. We tried. <laughs> now, as you've been telling us, you've seen so much during your space career. What do you think is the next step in human space flight that you would like to see come to fruition in your lifetime? Well, I would have loved to have seen us land on Mars. I recognize of where I am in my lifetime that I am not going to get to see that. But what I would really like to see is this country and the rest of the world together truly embark on an international effort to land the first human beings on Mars. Uh, not to colonize it, but to explore it. I think that would be fabulous as well. To yeah, so all to I can ask for is a start. <laughs> I think that's fair enough. Now, I've heard you describe yourself as an old-fashioned spaceman. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Yeah, this will take a minute. <laughs> there is a poem that was written 
that's my favorite poem called An Old Fashioned Space Band. And I'll read it to you. See, you shouldn't have asked. <laughs> it says, rocket ships are exciting, but so are roses on a birthday. Computers are exciting, but so is a sunset. And logic will never replace love. Sometimes I wonder where I belong, in the present or in the past. I guess I'm just an old-fashioned spaceman. And I've always enjoyed that. It was written by another old-fashioned spaceman, uh, Leonard Nimoy, Spock. And uh, I guess that's the way I am. I, I, I'm an engineer, but I've come to enjoy the human side of this, too. And, and being involved like I got to be in the first explorations of the moon, helping explore space, I see the, the beauty and the wonder in that, uh, as well as the ones and zeros and the margins of safety and that side of it. But I, I see the wonder in it. Which I think is the way that everyone should be. Yeah. I would I would like that very much. Now today um, you are you volunteer here at the Space Foundation Discovery Center. What do you enjoy most about your role as a docent here? I enjoy meeting our guests, our visitors. I, I enjoy getting to tell them about my favorite subject, the space program. And hopefully, especially in the, the youngsters, help planting the seed, help getting them excited about the future of science and technology and exploration. I don't care if the kids become rocket scientists or not. I want to get them interested in learning and being in technology, being in the STEM fields. Now, I also show them we've, we've got a picture wall up here where the Space Foundation sponsors a, a worldwide children's art contest and explaining to them that it isn't just STEM, that the arts are important. And I point out to them that the, the best engineers, the best scientists that I've ever worked with are the ones that not only are really good at STEM stuff, but also have a background in the arts. Our, our chief engineer, now deputy general manager, she works in acrylics. Uh, I blew the horn and I'm interested still in, in music. One of my counterparts at Jacobs, uh, division manager like I was, but he was in science and technology, uh, he plays the horn a whole lot better than I do. Alan Bean, uh, he enjoyed his art as much, maybe even more, than being an astronaut. This is what makes these people exceptional. And, and I want to instill that on the kids and, and get them excited. And it really is, it makes you well-rounded and... You know, we need the artists as well for the concept designs because oh, yeah. sometimes scientists and engineers only see the zeros and the ones that you mentioned earlier, and you need that artistic. When we were starting to develop the space station, I was in charge of what we call the crew station design, which include, in our case, spacewalks to make sure you could put it together and repair it, robotics to do the same thing, and also parts of the interior. 
And my boss said, I don't care how you do it, but really what I'd like the hatches in the space station to do is make them sound like they do on Star Trek. (laughs) Well, we never could get there, but that's the kind of inspiration that we need. (laughs) That would certainly be a lot of fun. (laughs) So my last question for you today is, what advice do you have for aspiring engineers? The best thing for aspiring engineers is, is want a wish. I hope you men and women, boys and girls, young people, get a chance to have as much fun and enjoy what you're doing as much as I did. For inspiring you, basically I'll say you guys cannot imagine what it is you're going to get to do, what it is you're going to get to work on. Uh, It's going to be unbelievable. Enjoy it. Go for it. And Never quit learning. Always, if it's something that fascinates you, go learn about it. Go try it. And I think that's wonderful advice. And again, I think that's for everybody. We should always try to keep learning. I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you so very much, Lou. It's been an absolute delight to hear your stories, and you paint such a wonderful picture that I can just see the Apollo 11 crew holding onto that fence looking at the Saturn V. So we definitely enjoyed having you today. So again, I want to thank all of our listeners. Again, I am Colleen Parrott of the Space Foundation, inviting you to learn more about our work at spacefoundation.org or by visiting the Discovery Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And you may get the chance to meet Lou if you come to visit us here one day as he's volunteering. Please keep your eyes and ears open for more podcasts coming your way because at the Space Foundation, we always have space for you. Thank you. Thank you.